Tonight, God's book of remembrance. By the way, anybody not get study notes when you came in? If you didn't get study notes, wave at one of the ushers. They will give it to you or a prayer list. You need both. It's a lot to think about when you come to church on Sunday night. All right. Malachi 3.13 to 4, verse 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. And then you see this pattern. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What good does it do? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So that's what the people have been saying. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, for one now, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. Let's all sing together. No, you don't have to. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. It's really an interesting passage. I'm, I'm paying particular attention to that phrase, God has this book of remembrance of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Malachi speaks at a time when the people of God had become cynical. Cynical about the value of serving God. Not denying God's existence, not denying anything about him doctrinally, but what, what do you get for serving Jesus? Now, whether the words were said out loud or not, the people were wrestling with the reality of beliefs that they had held all their lives. Maybe they tried to fight those nagging thoughts and doubts back down to the bottom of their hearts for a long time, but they kept coming to the surface. What's the point of really living for God? What do you get from it? Is it worthwhile? Does it actually make a difference? Look at the words in 14 and 15. 
you have said it's, it's vain to serve God. Not to believe in Him, but you, you serve Him. What's the profit of keeping His charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. It's people that don't serve the Lord at all. And they get more out of life than you do. So what's the point? That's where the people are. It's, it's a, a cynical heart. They didn't plan on it. It just crept up. Those thoughts come when there's been a season maybe of trial or persecution. They come when there's been a drought of what we might call unanswered prayer or when people who have wronged you in some way don't get justice, or when circumstances seem to eat up your physical strength or prosperity, and you stop, and you look at your life, and you just can't help it, you say, what difference does it make to serve God? Look at the people who aren't. Look at the people who trample on his name, who trample on his principles. They get along every bit as well as you do sometimes better. Make no mistake about it. That's the environment of wavering faith. That's when people deconstruct their faith. Since arrogant and evil people seem to prosper without any response from God, what do we get for serving him? Here's the same idea, Ecclesiastes. By the way, this is going to turn out to be a positive study. Lean over and tell somebody that. Ecclesiastes 9.2. It's the same for all. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, to the evil, to the clean, to the unclean, to him who sacrifices, to him who offers no sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears as he who shuns an oath. So what do you get for serving the Lord? How are we to measure the benefits of it? Why is honoring God an important thing? Other than maybe I'm glad I'm forgiven and one day go to heaven. But how do you measure the benefits of serving God? Why is honoring God an important thing? Something to be valued, even when a lot of other people scorn it. And let's face it, we seem to be losing a lot of battles in this world. Abortion, homosexuality, the sliding standards in the entertainment industry, all areas of concern to Christian people. Moral standards, even in the church, have changed drastically in the last 20 years. And when you look at the lives of the godless, it seems they can have their cake and eat it too. They don't seem to be squirming under the weight of their sin the way some evangelical preachers like to paint them. So what does God have to say to these people in Malachi's day who are becoming cynical about, like, serving the Lord? Yeah, but why? And God has two responses. 3.16, 4-3, 3.16, 4-3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, 
The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one does not, who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. These aren't my words. This is God speaking through the prophet. When all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So it will leave them neither root nor branch, no possibility of anything regrowing or developing. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, and they shall be as ashes under the sole of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. All right, a couple things we're going to look at now. Point number one. God keeps track of those who honor his name. It's in 16 and 17. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention. I'd underline paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of all those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, and they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So that's where you see this mention of a, a scroll, a book, maintained apparently with meticulous care and accuracy. Now, let's be clear. This is for our benefit, this picture. God, God doesn't have to write things down because he's afraid he's going to forget. Every once in a blue moon, I have to go to the grocery store by myself with a list. It is a terrifying experience. I'm the kind of guy that goes into the grocery store and says, where's the toast? I, but she will write things down. I need the list. I can't find what I'm supposed to find without the list. I'll get in there and I'll think, I know there were five things. That's not, that's not what God is doing. Oh, no, I might, I might forget. I might forget these people who are serving me. I better jot that down. It isn't that. It's not a to-do list or a grocery list. God has no memory lapses. These words are for our benefit. And here it is. God is confronting my tendency to think of him in terms that make him too much like I. I constantly have these little fogs during the day where my whole head is stuck in neutral. Have you ever had that happen? It's embarrassing to admit it. Where you get up, you walk into the kitchen, you get there, and you know you had a reason for going there. And what was it that I wanted to pick up? See, that never happens to God. 
particularly when the morals and values of godly living are in such a state of decay, when moral fools think they can replace the will of the Creator at their own ignorant discretion. I find myself, I know better, but I find myself praying, God, I like, I'm sorry, but do you see what's going on here? Do you see what people are doing? Do you see what they're saying? But I'm starting to realize God has two primary ways of preserving his glory in this fallen world. Two primary ways of preserving his glory in this fallen world. Here they are. First, as the course of events turns more and more against the standards of God's word, the citizens of this world will have less and less patience with the true church. That's where we're getting to. And God's going to be glorified in lives that are stubbornly committed who will not budge from their love for Jesus. I often wonder where God gets the most glory. Of course, he's gone now, but a packed Billy Graham crusade where you have hundreds of thousands of Christians in a room, is that where God gets the most glory? Or one faithful disciple of Jesus in a university class where he's the only or she's the only Christian in the room. See, that person has a unique chance to bring glory to God that the huge crowd doesn't. Someone stubbornly committed against all opposition, against all the darkness, all the ridicule, all the unbelief, someone who will not change his mind. You and I have the honor of glorifying God through enduring the trying of our faith. You can glorify God every day by patiently demonstrating that you value God more than the acceptance and good pleasure of those around you. God will find ways to test us in this. He will find ways to test us in that. And second, I said two ways God gets glorified in this world. God will be finally vindicated and glorified when he judges the world in truth and righteousness. It's going to be a shock for this world to discover that there is a day coming when Jesus returns, when all the polls and surveys and votes will have no meaning whatsoever. We're not used to that. We're not used to that. For now, if enough people feel a certain way about any issue their opinion becomes right. Of course, right simply means socially acceptable. But all that will change one day. Only God's will will stand, and God will enforce the keeping of his will in ways we don't see presently. So, God reminds these people, and me, and you, that we are not out of his sight or out of his heart and we're to place that idea at the front of our minds every day if we're going to stay strong in the Lord. It will keep you strong in the face of temptation and ridicule and opposition and one day persecution. God keeps track of those who honor him. And God presses that point home 
He doesn't judge, he doesn't judge everything right now. But here's, here's what, I think you have to take the text seriously, even though it's painting a picture. It's a, it's a serious point being made. God does not judge everything right now. He does record everything right now. I'm sure he doesn't have a computer, but he records everything. Maybe to be a little more precise to the text, he doesn't even reward everything right now, but he records every righteous heart, every holy act, every time you continue to stand for Christ, it is noted. It matters. I'll tell you why I think that is important. Being human as we are, there's nothing that makes faithfulness more of a challenge than the thought that nobody notices anyway. Nothing makes faithfulness more of a challenge to just people like we than just the thought in the back of the mind. Nobody cares. And so there's, there's a wife who lives with a boor of a husband. And every day she sticks it out and tries to make it work against all the odds. What makes it extremely difficult is nobody outside knows how hard it is for her. You've been leading the same Bible study with the same four people for 10 years. It hasn't grown one bit. And you sit there with that little group after nine years and you say, who cares anyway? You're pastoring a church and you're trying to make Sunday night work when there's not another church in the country that has Sunday night church. And you look around and you say, most of the people in this church couldn't care beans whether we shut this down next week. And that makes it hard to keep going. I could give you a million examples. You can think of them yourself. And it's in the middle of that that the prophet says, it's not all rewarded right now, but your little act of faithfulness when no one seems to notice, my little acts of faithfulness when nobody seems to care or notice, he says, God writes that down. That he remembers. You think of all the millions and billions of good little things that Christians do that don't amount to a hill of beans unless you pile them all up together. And somehow when Jesus comes and rewards for every good deed that followers of Christ do and things that were long forgotten about, he's, he's got them written down. That they all matter. I hope you find strength in that. I hope you find comfort in that. Every person who quietly, patiently endures, everyone who doesn't strike back, everyone who doesn't give up, everyone who goes the second mile, everyone who fights long private battles in some dingy prayer closet, 
Everyone who stays home some lonely Friday night because he refuses the company and the waste of time of ungodly friends, not one second of that goes unrecorded by God. The Bible reminds us that everything matters more than it appears right at the moment. Psalm 56, 8. Here's a great verse. The next time you can't sleep, get up, open your Bible to Psalm 56, 8. David says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Do you see what that verse says? What's breaking your heart? What makes you feel overwhelmed and inadequate and frustrated when you can't sleep at night because something troubles you and keeps you awake? God writes that down. So David lies awake at night, tossing, the text says, contemplating the successes of his enemies. There's no Tylenol capsules to ease the pain or silence his racing brain. It's 3 a.m. He's a lonely king, and all he can do is stare at the ceiling of his bedchamber and cry and toss and turn. And God says to some celestial recorder, make sure you write this down. David is tossing and turning, trying to follow me, and I'm going to keep track of that. And he does for you too. Look at Revelation 5, 6 to 8. I'm trying to show you this is not some isolated little picture in the Italian prophet Malachi. Revelation 5, 6 to 8. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went back and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We're going to go into prayer groups, not too long. If I read this right, Prayers don't just get said, they get banked. They're invested. How important are all those words when you're praying for something, when you pray with someone? How significant is our effort before God Almighty? Well, the whole point is this, prayer isn't wasted. You might not see it right now. So there's Malachi, reminds this godly remnant, getting a bit cynical, wondering if it all counts. You can't endure it long without the support of this future hope. It's easy to forget about it. We get discouraged when all the wrongs aren't righted right now, when all the sick aren't healed right now, when life throws both sweet and sour on the same plate, when wrong prevails instead of right, when immorality flourishes instead of righteousness, when you're wearying in that battle 
and you're tempted to throw in the towel, remind yourself of God's book of remembrance. The book of remembrance is for those who fear. It says, fear the Lord and those who esteem his name. It's in 16. The verb fear means to reckon, to count, or to consider. So it's not a matter of knowing about God's book of remembrance. It's, it's thinking about it in the sense of banking on it. It's mentally drawing strength from it. Acting on this trust that God is in control. It's resisting compromise because you know God is trustworthy even when you don't see his hand. He records. Point number two. We're almost done. Remember... God reminds his hearers that even though the scores of life between the godly and the ungodly aren't decisively settled right now, a day of judging will make the distinction clear and final. If you jump in at 4.1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. I don't know what that looks like. I just know what the text says. So that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked they will be as ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So these verses show why a book of remembrance is being kept. God will one day prove that no act of obedience and faithfulness and dedication, God will prove that not one of those things was ever overlooked or disregarded, however it looks right now. There's a Christmas carol I want to read to you. It's written by Henry Longfellow. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to man. Yet pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to man. Then ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to man. I've never, ever, ever led that carol in our church. I suppose it's pretty enough, but I've always thought Longfellow was a better poet than theologian. The wrong will fail, the right prevail, but it won't be with a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, and merrily down the road. It will be when Jesus comes with the sound of a trumpet and the resurrection of the dead and a purging fire of judgment that will cleanse and renovate a new heaven and a new earth and establish a new creation over which he will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. 
In the meantime, we live in a world where godly and pagan are mixed together. But I love, it's a simple picture. I love that closing picture of the unbounded, unrestrained, uncontainable hilarity on that glorious day, like a calf that's been cooped up in a little stall, hemmed in, and finally turned totally loose and free and just goes bounding out. But as for you who fear my name, for too, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. One day, the waiting will be over, the recording will be brought to light. Hope will turn to sight. We can hardly imagine it. And that leaping calf is a beautiful picture of all those who just stay faithful to the Lord and find that joy when he comes again. Remember, everything you do for the Lord will never be forgotten whether anybody else sees it or not. And everyone said...